Hey everyone, it's Rachel, and thank you so much for listening to our season seven finale episode. We had a super special guest join us this week to close out the season, which meant that we had her remoting in virtually for the episode, which also means that audio quality is not the same as it is for our other episodes. So I just wanted to give you a heads up about that before you tune in. Also, if you are new to the podcast, we do a little chit chat and banter and we try out a cocktail at the beginning of each episode. If you are not interested in hearing all of that and just want to get to the interview, go ahead and skip forward by about 10 minutes. But if you do enjoy delicious cocktail recipes, I highly recommend tuning into this one because this week's was the bomb. Thanks again and enjoy the episode. This is Hashtag History, Episode 70. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And we are now one more season down and how many ever episodes closer to 100 episodes. That's crazy. Yeah, that is pretty in- intense. That's intense of us. <laughs> That's int- We're so extra. Uh, any particular favorites from this season, Leah? Oh, gosh, you always put me on the spot with this. Okay, let me think through. Season 7. Um, I really liked the Japanese. I know it's, that's not like a very yeah. happy thing, uh, yeah. but the Japanese detention camps was really interesting and cool um, to learn more about. And that also had, I think, our favorite cocktail from the season. Our favorite cocktail from this season. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I think that one was probably my favorite. Um, but I also really liked our episode about the 1916 shark attacks. That one was really fun, even though that cocktail sucked. Yeah. Oh, and I found my, my history, historical girl crush Lee Miller this season. So yes, you did. That was so fun. Yeah. That was so special to be there for that moment. <laughs> So I think probably my favorite part of this last season has just been watching all of the growth. We got to do so many fun things this season. Like we started our bonus episodes on Patreon and then having the opportunity to guest on so many other podcasts as well as join other fun virtual events. So it's been a really, really great season. Mm hmm. So as longtime Hashtag History listeners know, every season we have the pleasure of having a special guest on our season finale episode. And this season we have a super special guest on the podcast. We have Alicia Gutierrez-Romine with us here today. And we will, of course, turn the mic over to her to introduce herself. But a quick intro to her from me. Uh, She's an author and historian that wrote about the history of criminal abortions in California. And that is what she's here today to share with us. I read her book and I cannot wait to pick her brain about it and for all of you to learn from her as well. Alicia is not only a badass historian, like Rachel said, but she also has become a true friend of the Hashtag History podcast. Alicia is one of the most supportive listeners we have, I think. like She likes almost every single post we do on <laughs> social media. And oh yeah, has offered us her couch and her awesome outdoor bar at her house next time we go and to- And pool. Yes, at, at <laughs> next time we go to the Disneyland area, which we absolutely will be taking you up on that, Alicia. So thank you so much. And then if you want to give yourself a little introduction, that would be awesome. So first of all, correction, because I offered you my guest room, not the couch. So oh, <laughs> even oh, better. There's, like an, there's an actual bed. <laughs> we will actually just sleep in the bar if that's okay. Yeah, there's room for two to like sleep on the counter. <laughs> Great. Uh, so I'm Alicia Gutierrez-Romine. I'm a history professor and I, I teach U.S. history. I teach courses in gender in the American West. Um, I've been doing that for about five years now. I got my doctorate in 2016 and I'm based in Southern California. Did you also teach California history, right? I do. That's one of my, uh, my core classes that, that I teach for my load. Yeah. That's awesome. I remember when we dropped our episode about the San Francisco earthquake, you had like really excellent feedback that you, I mean, you use the earthquake in your own studies to talk about California history and especially the growth of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was, it's kind of an interesting thing to look at because um, I think one of the things you said in your episode was, you know, why are people like so happy after the, the earthquake happened? And it's right because I, the, the city had kind of come together really haphazardly. And um, so it kind of like paved the way, paved the opportunity for um, San Franciscans in this progressive era kind of city, beautiful moment to create the city that they envisioned, that they wanted to make it like a really a metropolitan, cosmopolitan place in the American mm-hmm. West. So 
maybe for some of the San Francisco planners, it was a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Yeah. That is so fascinating. And then something else I wanted to address up front is that obviously the conversation about abortion is complex and it can be controversial. So I wanted to make it clear with this episode that we will not be sharing opinions or or attempting to persuade anyone any which way. We're here to talk about the history of criminal abortions, a topic that I think is so important to understand regardless of what side of the argument you're on. We're going to be talking about the history of abortions as well as a look at where abortion is today, because I think most people assume following Roe v. Wade that abortion is, you know, federally legal and accessible. But in reality, that's not necessarily true. So we are so excited to have you here, Alicia, to walk us through all of that as the expert. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this is Hashtag History the podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike, where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Before we get into all of that and turn things over to you, we do have to all have this cocktail that looks so good and my mouth has been watering since I sat down at my computer. So yes, yes. Today we are drinking a cocktail not named after our topic um, because that would be morbid, really morbid, (laughs) (laughs) but instead named after the location of our topic, all of our home states of California. And this couldn't sound more perfect because I know, I don't know about for you, Alicia, but here in Sacramento, it's like in the high 80s, I think low 90s today. Yeah, it's miserable today. Yeah, (laughs) it's hot today. I had to turn the AC on way earlier than normal. Yeah. So like a nice, refreshing bourbon drink just sounds absolutely perfect to me. Yes. So today we'll be drinking the California Lemonade, which this contains two ounces of bourbon whiskey, an ounce of fresh lemon juice, an ounce of fresh lime juice, an ounce of simple syrup, a fourth ounce of grenadine, soda water, and then orange and lemon wheels and maraschino cherries to garnish. I feel like there's nothing that you could go wrong with any of those things in this drink. They are all, this is the perfect drink. Having not even tasted it yet, just hearing the ingredients. It's the perfect drink. Now I'm going to yes. love it. Bourbon, it's, it's yep. literally, that's all I need. So uh, before I get into a little <laughs> bit more on this cocktail, I figured I can't wait any longer. So let's take a drink and start sipping. Yes. Okay. Cheers, ladies. Mm. Oh, my God. It's so good. Oh, my God. That's really refreshing. Oh so this gosh. is all I'm drinking from now on. Yeah. Yeah. I actually used a smoke simple syrup. I didn't have regular. Oh, that syrup. sounds good. So it kind of brings out, I think, the the whiskey a little bit. The bourbon. Yeah. Yeah. The barrel, yeah. like the woody barrel yeah, flavor. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I'm a total slacker. Continue to drink, ladies. Um, I'm a total slacker <laughs> and did not remember to pick a cocktail for this week's episode. So Rachel, being the boss babe she is and the person that always keeps me on track with this podcast, so she presented me with two, two cocktails to choose from and said, here you go. Um, so this is the one I selected. I say give yourself, give yourself a little credit, too, that... What you have been working on for the past seven months just happened this last week. So a large event, you're an event planner, it happened this last week. So give yourself a tiny bit of slack in that regard. Thank you. Because since then, I have been an emotional wreck. Like I'm both like, I just start crying for no reason, Um, (laughs) 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 which is not abnormal for me normally. But like, I mean, I'm really just on on the edge edge. at any moment. (laughs) So little did you know, Rachel, or at least I don't think you know, knew this, that um, this recipe that you chose, it comes from MrBostonDrinks.com. The same Mr. Boston's as my old ass inherited cocktail book I got from my Nana. I did know that. Okay. That was part of why I, I selected this one. Yeah. So on the Mr. Boston's website, you can actually go back and see how the cocktail was made and all the iterations and changes it's gone through, like in the different publications of the cocktail guide that uh, Mr. Boston's makes. And for those of you who really want to throw it back and have like the original 1930s version with the ingredients from the book that I currently have from the original publication, um, 
It contains a little bit different. It contains a squeeze of lemon, a squeeze of lime, a tablespoon of powdered sugar, a jigger of old Mr. Boston whiskey, which is the replaces the bourbon, a dash of grenadine, mm-hmm. and then you fill the glass with carbonated water instead of soda water. So if you want to go old school, that's what you can do. I'm just going to do whatever this is over and over and over again. Now that I have all of the ingredients, this is my drink of choice for the entire week. Yes, I, I have. I had to buy a whole new bottle of bourbon for this. So we'll see how long it lasts. No. Oh, darn. <laughs> <Poor thing. Shoot>. <laughs> <laughs> research, research. <laughs> yeah, hashtag research. Um, so Alicia, as our guest, do you want to do the first rating of this cocktail? Oh, Okay. What would you give it? One out of 10, out of 10. or one to 10. I would probably, I think it's like an eight or a nine. I, I like it a lot. Um, I, I think I would appreciate if I had a cherry in it just because I like eating the cherries and I didn't have cherries today. Um, but no, probably, yeah. probably a nine. It's really good. I really like it. It's a 10. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. I can't, this is like literally (laughs) everything I love about cocktails in this drink. So Mm -hmm. I was going to give it like a 12 out of 10 because (laughs) I'm the same with the cherries. And so I actually just before recording ran to the store to grab some maraschino cherries because I was like, (laughs) it it has to have the cherries to top the whole thing off. Yeah. Delicious. Excellent. Probably. Pending, pending a cherry, it probably gets <laughs> Sans cherry. Okay, so Alicia, tell us how you began your research. Because I loved reading the preface of your book and learning that criminal abortions was not even what you originally intended to study. So walk us through that whole process. So I, I always liked medical history. Um, it was something that I was always really fascinated by. And when I was an undergrad, I actually was um, specializing in modern European history. Um, mm. So a lot of the first research that I was doing, uh, like the where I really like dealt with the primary sources, um, was looking at Dr. Joseph Mengele and some of the experiments that he did um, mm-hmm. in Auschwitz. And so that's kind of what I guess, got me into medical history. And then as I was doing that research, I really became more familiar with the American eugenics movement. Yeah, Um, which California is huge in that area. The center of it. Like we basically said, here you go, Hitler. Here's how you should do everything. And oh, you're doing a great job. 100%. Um, It's like a little embarrassing that, you know, places like Stanford and and USC have that kind of history buildings after some of those people. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very eugenics history runs deep in California. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I kind of became familiar with that, I decided, oh, like I'm going to go to grad school. I might as well do American history. And then I could kind of look at the eugenics movement. And then my senior thesis ended up being on medical experiments during the Cold War. Wow. So it was really, I just, I love medical history mm-hmm. and like medical experimentation, things like that really gory, horrible morbid things. Like that's things. my jam. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> the more morbid. Welcome. The Join the club. Oh, yeah, us too. <laughs> morbid history. Welcome. <laughs> so I, I started doing, you know, my graduate study. I became familiar with uh, this woman named Dr. Edna Griffin. Uh, she was the first black woman physician in Pasadena, California. And I just kind of became obsessed with her. She was a mm-hmm. badass and she was um, you know, one of the first presidents of an NAACP chapter, first woman president of an NAACP chapter. And she wow. was involved in a lot of civil rights things in Southern California. I won't talk about her too much because she's the focus of my next project. Yay. Um, so give it all away. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> but, exciting. Uh, I, and I was literally just going to say, uh, why didn't we focus this episode around her instead? But I guess dot, 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 we'll have to wait for that. Yes. Because, Yay. um, I, you know, I wanted my dissertation to actually be about her and her experiences as a physician in Southern California, like between the 30s and post-World War II. Mm -hmm. And so I got funding to go to Sacramento to to do research at the California State Archives. And I, yeah, like right, right down the street from you. Yes, seriously. (laughs) Yeah. And so the next time I do research up there, I'll reach out. And Please do. Absolutely. Yes. That's right by, <laughs> that's right by old Sacramento, which is the best place to go bar hopping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Noted. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went there and um, 
I, you know, I couldn't just, you can't do like a biography for your dissertation. So I was like, well, how can I fit her into this larger project about race and medicine in Southern California? And so I thought that I would find um, physicians of color primarily in physician license revocation files. Mm -hmm. And I expected to find kind of drama there or, you know, complications, controversy, whatever. And I forgot to request archivist permission to look at documents that were, were like after, I think at this point it was like after 1938 or something. Mm. And so I was really frustrated and I just said, well, you know, let me look at what I can. And as I was going through these documents, I kept finding references to physicians losing their medical licenses for performing illegal operations. And that's all it says, just illegal yeah, operations. that's all it says, illegal mm -hmm. operations. And so me, I'm like elder millennial and I don't really like understand like what is going on. Like sure. what of surgery like illegal or anything like that and then i realized that it was a euphemism for abortion and so then i just kind of fell down this rabbit hole and i think the the fact that i you know i jokingly say elder millennial but it's also kind of as someone who was born in the late 1980s like i always thought abortion was legal like i never really thought about what was like before that or anything like that and so i just realized that this is kind of what I was uncovering. And I never really put together that it was illegal before Roe versus Wade, if Roe versus Wade made it legal. Mm -hmm. So I ended up finding out about um, this illegal abortion syndicate called the, the Pacific Coast Abortion Ring. I It was headquartered in LA. I emailed my advisor and he is kind of an expert in LA history. And he said he'd never heard of it before. Wow. And I just needed to find out everything that I could is, is basically what he said in the email. So the very next day, I decided to make a really practical decision. I was in the fifth year of my doctoral program. I wanted a done dissertation. Um, so I decided to put Edna Griffin on the back burner um, so that I could really dive into these abortion documents and figure out the story. I really love that backstory, that it wasn't something that you were necessarily going for. It's just something you came upon via the rabbit hole um I, that's fascinating that's awesome and isn't that so true for like i feel like all people do studying or looking into a historical event it it always mm -hmm. leads to interest in something else some outlying thing that is loosely related to what you're looking into and then all of a sudden becomes your main focus it's really cool right yeah and it's just kind of a weird experience because i never thought about abortion so much in my mm -hmm. life as I have probably in the last oh, yeah. six years. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, what kind of documents did you review in order to gather the information for your book? I know you mentioned coming to the Sacramento um, Capitol Archives. What, what, what else did you collect? So there were a lot of records there um, at the California State Archives. They have the uh, Board of Medical Examiner's records, which is really kind of the principal, you know, medical organization that kind of was oversight for the medical field in California. So they had a bunch of different records there. Other places that, that I did research were at, uh, you know, archival documents at UCLA, the Huntington Library, um, Bancroft Library at Berkeley. Um, I had the privilege of being able to consult with a lot of like digital things. So um, UC Riverside, which is closest to me, they have this thing called the California Digital Newspaper Collection. And so they've literally just cataloged and digitized newspapers from California history from the 19th century to like the 20th century. And all of them are searchable. Oh my God. I love that. It's such a good resource. Their website is a little bit wonky, but it is free. So <laughs> you can That's incredible. And you were able to use that to like for information for your book. Yeah. You know, some historians do talk a little bit of crap about using newspapers as primary sources, but I think they give you insight into what people care about at the moment. Mm -hmm. And maybe Absolutely. you take it with a grain of salt, um, but they still kind of let you know big stories that are going on and mm -hmm. basic details that you can kind of draw from. Um, so that was a really helpful uh, resource because so many of these stories that I talked about in the book are sensationalized. Yeah. And they become these big kind of explosive, salacious, you know, yellow journalism stories. Yeah. I, I did research at the coroner medical examiner's office, which was a whole other experience in itself. Was that here in Sacramento? No, here in LA County. 
Okay. Um, it's this really old brick building, and they threw me in the basement <laughs> to do my research. That seems appropriate, oh. like for the coroner's office to be in like the basement of some old building. <laughs> it was so creepy. Um, smelled of bleach. It was really, <laughs> really weird. Oh my god! Um, that literally just gave me goosebumps <laughs> on my arms. <laughs> it was the creepiest thing to do, and um, but I, I, it was an experience. I mean, how totally. Many say they did that, but. <laughs> One of my favorite sources, though, was I actually, through my research, was able to find the granddaughter of one of the the women I talk about in the book. <gasps> and her granddaughter was kind of this, you know, amateur historian, kind of interested in a few little things. I told her what I was doing. And so she actually sent me a box of her grandmother's stuff. And she oh was just like, God. take your time with it. You can ship it back to me whenever you're done. So it was her personal effects. It was, uh, she just sent me like a big UPS box and it was pictures, newspaper clippings, court documents. And she even had started writing her own memoir. Um, so all of these things were kind of in there. And so it gave me a really kind of intimate, uh, you know, insight into her grandma's life. What a cool, cool, cool opportunity to be able to look, have a firsthand account of that stuff. Yeah, it was that was probably the best. And so I remember like the box came and I had it shipped to my mom's house. I wasn't living there at the time. And she's like, you got this big box. And I was like, oh, like, you know, this, this woman, uh, I'm writing about her granddaughter sent me a few things. And so we, it was my mom and sister and I, we kind of all opened up the box together and oh we're like, God. what is in here? And like, how exciting, all this stuff from the forties. And we're kind of sharing and going through it together. So it was kind of a cool experience. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That is so cool. Um, having read your book, do you mind sharing who that woman is, though? Or, I mean, you know, the the grandmother that you talked about and like a brief story about her? Yeah. So that was Laura Minor. And so she I, I talk about her. She kind of spans two chapters. She was in the Pacific Coast abortion ring. Um, but then after um, after that, she actually operates her own abortion business in San Diego. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. She she didn't get any time for the Pacific Coast abortion ring because she testified for immunity. And then uh, she has her own business. She ends up getting arrested uh, in 1948 and she does 46. And she ends up doing uh, basically about two years in prison. So a lot of the memoir stuff was she was writing as she was in prison. Oh my God, that is so fascinating. So I think it's early in the book. I feel like it's like chapter one or two where you told the story of the body that was found in the Merrimack River. Mm-hmm. And that was shocking to me. That was something that I just had to talk to you about because that was something that super stood out to me in the book. Can you tell our listeners about that and what the overall narrative that that story has for criminal abortions at that time? Yeah, so that's, uh, I think it opens up like the, maybe it's the first or second chapter. I can't even remember off the top of my head anymore. But uh, <laughs> I think it's the first chapter, the first real chapter after the intro. Um, so that's actually a reference to uh, a 1923 article in the Boston Daily Globe. And, um, you know, it it was a really interesting article to me. I had to include it, even though it wasn't in California, even though it's, you know, Boston, because it was really gory the way that they wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, they spared no details in this. It's a full, like, two-page spread article. Um, you know, they're saying things like portions of a woman's body mutilated you know, found in a cheap black imitation leather suitcase. And it goes on about how legs and torsos were missing and, you know, Mm. all of these things. And it was, it was found floating. Um, And, you know, in one of the the descriptions of that, they said, I wrote the quote down right here because it's so great. The torso and arms made a heavy bag full, but the person who threw it away overlooked the air chamber created, which offset the weight of human flesh. So it's just really kind of sensational writing here and and they make note of saying like how all of the cuts were so clean so they did a physician Mm -hmm. was involved and um so a a little 12 year old boy ends up finding this suitcase he thinks it's actually uh, a suitcase full of whiskey which hello leah um full circle (laughs) circle. ding 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 um he actually (laughs) thinks it's a bunch of whiskey because it's prohibition Yeah. And you see a a suitcase that's been tossed off into the river. Of course, it's full of booze. And so, you know, imagine this poor kid's surprise um, when he sees, you know, body parts in there. So it was actually I, you know, I followed up on it, but I I didn't go too much deep into detail on the book uh, beyond just sharing the article. Um, It was a woman named Alice uh, Wolschendorf. Uh, She ended up being identified by a scar on her finger. 
Um, she had been missing. She was 43 years old. She was married. She was pregnant, but didn't want to be. And it mm -hmm. was actually a physician who, who had performed the abortion. And he uh, dismembered her because he thought it would prevent her identification. So yeah. he, he was arrested. He was charged with performing abortion. He only got like five to 10 years. Um, some of the sources say, you know, seven to 10, some say, some say five to seven, so five to 10 years. But I guess like the arc uh, is related to the title. So like from back alley to the border. So I start with the proverbial kind of back alley butcher. And then mm -hmm. it ends with stories about California women who crossed the border into Mexico for illegal abortions when the landscape changed, when the legal landscape changed. So um, the title actually came to me in my sleep. Um, oh, that's neat. <laughs> I, that I is normally how it happens, like in your sleep or in the shower or something. Yeah, I had a completely different title and my advisor hated it. And he was just like, you need to spend more time on, on thinking about the title. And then one day I just came up to him <laughs> and I was like, from back alley of the border. And he's like, yes, that's it. That's it. Um, but the book covers a series of exceptional news stories. It kind of follows LA history, begins with film and Hollywood, would-be starlets and abortions. And, you know, I have a chapter where I focus on the experience of a young black woman who dies from an illegal abortion mm -hmm. and, you know, how the experience of the black physician also differed from his white physician counterparts. And, uh, you know, I spend time talking about the Pacific Coast abortion ring and basically looking at some of the changes that happen after that case in terms of California's abortion law enforcement and how it becomes more difficult for women to, to get the procedure, which pushes them across the border. Mm -hmm. I think that the way that you opened up the book with that story about the body in the suitcase in the river was so shocking. Um, and it set up the book in a way where you, you gained some perspective in that, you know, it was clear that the woman had, um, you know, undergone an abortion, but then also that these like cuts to her body, right. To like dismember her body were very clean cuts. And so it was assumed that it was a physician that did it. I mean, you've already shared all this, but it, it just sets up this like narrative for women, you know, obtaining abortions that like, you are not safe, even in the hands of these physicians that like, if something went wrong during the course of that abortion, their license is now in jeopardy. And your physician may very well kill you if you know, if you could end up if you didn't already ruining die. their reputation, yeah. if you didn't already die from the procedure. Um, if you put their license and their reputation in jeopardy, I mean, it, it's your life that's in jeopardy. It just that was like such a shocking story. And it really set up the whole narrative and perspective for, for the whole book, really. Now, circling back to, uh, we just mentioned prohibition and whiskey. Um, <laughs> you drew a lot of parallels between prohibition and abortion in your book. So can you go into that and kind of explain those parallels to our listeners? Yeah. And, you know, I think, and especially for some of the, the early chapters and, and the fact that I ended up talking about organized crime later, I think that kind of establishing the role of prohibition and thinking about some of these like malum prohibitum crimes, right? They're, they're crimes that are bad because they're illegal. It's not like murder, it's not like robbery where you know you are actually doing like damage to someone. So things like sex work, things mm -hmm. like drug use, those are crimes that are bad because they're illegal, mm -hmm. right? We, we say these aren't good because you're not supposed to do them. And abortion is one of those things that kind of falls within that, you know, we, especially for like the Pacific Coast abortion ring chapter, I tried to draw parallels between, you know, the creation of an organized crime structure and how um, that is related to, you know, the fallout from prohibition that were it not yeah. for prohibition, then, you know, organized crime would not have been able to become what it was. And so Reginald Rankin, who's kind of the the, the brains behind the Pacific Coast abortion ring, he relies a lot, I think, on some of those ideas about like how an organized crime syndicate should function. Um, but also thinking about like how abortion is one of those crimes where it's kind of regulated in, you have crackdowns, right? You don't have like someone like guarding the door of an abortion clinic or something so you can't come in or anything like that. Like you have these periodic moments where they crack down on people who provide abortions mm -hmm. or they, you can't really do that same kind of thing uh, with murder or anything like that, yeah. where you say, Oh, like we'll wait a little while. And in two weeks we'll do a massive crackdown on like all the murders over there. <laughs> so it's one of these crimes that 
continues to have a market for it. It often comes at an expense to middle class consumers. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who end up driving the price up. And a lot of people don't feel necessarily that some of those things are bad. They know they're illegal, but they don't need to think it's necessarily something that they shouldn't be doing. And so by creating this type of regulation, by making it illegal, it turns otherwise, you know, law abiding citizens into criminals as yeah. well. Yeah, I think that was a perfect segue into something that was new to me in reading the book was learning about the history of the politicization of abortions. Because before the 20th century, your book says, I have the quote here, that abortion was not always considered a deviant practice of fallen or seduced women. Instead, it was a remedy. Can you walk us through the The politicization of of abortions? Yeah, so... I would say that the politicization of, of abortion was something that's that's even more recent maybe than, than the book. So like the 1970s or, or 1980s, but the moral aspect of it, right? The idea of saying like, this is murder. That was a product of the 19th century. Yeah. Like before that, you know, before the mid 1800s, no one really thought about the fetus as a person with rights or, or even as potential life. Um, it's, I think it's really something that's important to remember that for most of American history, like literally until the 1930s, abortion was safer than childbirth. Like abortion in the hands of a skilled practitioner was safer than the childbirth. So, you know, before that, from the colonial period through, you know, the 19th century, if a woman missed her period, you know, there was probably a certain sense of dread that came with that. She doesn't know why her period's late and she doesn't know until quickening when she feels fetal movement that she's actually pregnant. and could you imagine? Oh my yeah, gosh. like why am I late? Why am I late? Why am I late? Like where are you? And then all of a sudden, there's something in your stomach that's not just the Taco Bell. And like it's, oh and god, it's taking your ribs. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So you know she she doesn't really know she's pregnant until quickening, and you know miscarriage and, and stillbirth they were way more common than they are today. So there isn't so much meaning meaning that's attached to fetal life because it could literally be there one day and, and gone the next. So the the moralization of abortion was really a product of like 19th century obstetricians, their legitimacy and authority over this. Because even previous to this, abortion, anything reproductive, most of American women, you know, women have their friends and their sisters and their mothers that they refer to, and they have their midwives that they consult with. And they might go to a midwife or something to help them get rid of the obstruction to kind of bring back menzies or something. Mm. Um, But when these primarily male physicians are trying to build this field, it's really easy for them to target abortion because it is mostly a practice that women midwives to practitioner color do. So for many of these white New England male physicians, um, those people are the other. And if they can say that fetal life means something and that the people who perform abortions are less intelligent, malicious, evil, whatever, then they can say that they are the protectors of women and children and, and say that they are really the true practitioners of, of medicine. So it's really a lot of lobbying on their be, uh, behalf. And even the American Medical Association also was really effective at this so that by the time we get to 1880, every state has a law against abortion. That is fascinating. All right. So let's dive into probably one of the greatest misconceptions regarding abortions and the women that seek them. I think the most common misconception is that the overwhelming majority of women getting abortions are, quote, young, unwed women. Um, Can you speak to what the true statistics were and currently are? Yeah. So in my research, which again, I'm, I'm focusing mostly like 1920 to 1969. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the kind of demographic data that I gathered came from coroner's records. So it's important to kind of recognize that these are women who die. And it doesn't maybe kind of tell us the full story, but I would argue that it does give us insight generally into the type of women who get abortions. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the coroner's data that I looked at over this, this time period, the vast majority of women who died from illegal abortions were married. Somewhere in the realm of about 80% of these women were married. 80%? 80%. That is an yeah. overwhelming statistic. It was like even, it used to be like 80, 
like 82, 88%. And then as the years kind of went on, then it drifted to like 81%. So it was, it declines as you have like more single women who are, you know, maybe having abortions or more people who are divorced Mm -hmm. and things like that. So the proportion of married women does decline. I mean, that's just mind blowing given the common misconception about mm-hmm. the women that yeah. are seeking abortions. That that is actually mind blowing. Yeah, it was, you know, it was about 80%. And today, um, you know, a lot of abortion data is self-reported. So it's a lot more difficult to get like demographic data, married mm-hmm. or single or anything like that. But if we use maybe age as an imperfect substitute for that, um, there is 2014 data from the Guttmacher Institute. Um, and according to their data, more than half, uh, it's it's actually about like 61% of the women who have abortions are in their twenties. Yeah. Um, so, you know, granted there's a huge difference between a 20 year old and a 29 year old, Yes. you know, mentally. I can speak to that. <laughs> um, like, but still there's you- even a greater difference between that and an unwed 16 year old. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but they're, you know, they're adults. And so that same data poll that said, you know, 61% are, are in their twenties, um, you know, 12, percent of abortion patients were adolescents. Wow. So, you know, and then that means the remaining are, you know, 30s or, or older. You know, pre-Roe, I think most of the women who have abortions are married. And mm-hmm. I think it fits a certain narrative. You know, in the early 20th century, it's maybe easier to understand or kind of wrap your head around why a young single woman would want an abortion, right? Because of social norms, they those are what's dictating what's a, uh, what's appropriate. Um, you know, these women, these young women might want to hide their shame, mm-hmm. but I think it brings in a whole host of other questions. Like why are married women wanting abortions? Like, isn't the, isn't the purpose of marriage to have children and be fruitful and multiply? Yeah, yeah. Um, so if we recognize that married women want abortions, it, I think it challenges the norm and it maybe recognizes that women don't want to just be pregnant, yeah. which maybe to some people is troubling. Yeah. And I think something that you, touched on in the book wasn't necessarily, um, I mean, yes, of course, there's the piece of like, just because I'm married doesn't mean I want to have a million kids. Uh, and that could strictly be, you know, the, the, the motivation behind getting an abortion is like, hi, my only purpose in life isn't just to have children. But part of the book too, you talked about like some of these women that were seeking abortions as married women, they already had four, five, six kids. Like, it wasn't that they didn't want to have children. It was that they had so many children, you know, like at a certain point, hi, I'm done. Uh, <laughs> child rearing. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and especially like during the depression, we see that a lot, you know, yeah. like I, I'm, my husband doesn't have a job and I'm the only income or we have no income and we already have four kids and now I'm pregnant because I don't have access to birth control because it's illegal. Like, what am I supposed to do? Right. And so, and, and, you know, the data doesn't also speak to the quality of marriages that these women have, you know, we don't know if there's domestic abuse or anything like that, that could make this a, an unhappy marriage. Um, and again, just, there are no real other options for some of these women to exercise reproductive control. One thing that was really neat in reading the book was that it was, there was like a lot of California history in it, which all of us live in California. So I was living for that. Uh, But in reading about California history, you kind of already touched on this tonight. Um, I learned how much of an influence that like the cutting edge glamorous aspects of the Golden State had on the history of abortions, namely the way that the movie industry influenced abortions and how eugenics also played a role. So can you speak to all of that? I know that was a very loaded question. There was a lot (laughs) packed in there. But like, what makes California abortion history unique? What are all of these factors and variables that that play a piece in this this story? I think the eugenics component is uh, an interesting kind of parallel to this story because the eugenics movement tells us that reproduction writ large isn't sacred, right? That there are instances when physicians and society uh, and institutions are happy to, you know, snip, snip, tie tubes, um, you know, cauterize, Ugh. whatever. Um, and that yeah. it's, it's, so it's the argument is that women reproduce and things like that. That isn't true because for some people, their reproduction is considered more valuable than for other people. So mm-hmm. I think having the eugenics movement kind of run side by side the story. And I don't, 
I, I mention it in a few instances and I probably don't speak about it as much as I should. Um, I think that is kind of what the most striking parallel is that mm -hmm. you have all of these instances when physicians are saying, yeah, let's, you know, let's do a, a tubal ligation, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but you can't have an abortion because we want you to have children. Uh, you're the yeah. right type of person to have more children. Mm -hmm. So I oh, think that's, that's kind of the interesting thing. Yeah. I think that's one of the interesting kind of parallels with that. As far as, you know, Hollywood and, and everything, um, you know, Hollywood, the modern Hollywood industry that we have, it wouldn't have existed without access to, to abortion. That's so much about creating this cult of celebrity for some of these early stars and starlets was about, you know, controlling an image of what they look like. And if anyone got pregnant out of wedlock, then that was a problem that these, you know, heads at all of these studios had to resolve. So they often had, you know, their own abortion doctors on standby to do these things and to fix their problems. But it also is kind of interesting because you have these maybe young women who want to be part of the film industry and they run into issues and they have problems that need to be fixed. And so they use abortion. And then abortion is also played out on the big screen as these kind of moral sensational stories as well. Mm -hmm. So it kind of filters through all the different layers of Hollywood. And it, in the Hollywood films, it's seen as like a really bad thing. But behind the screen, it's happening all the time. Okay, so in your book, you talked in length about the dangers of illegal abortions because there weren't uniform regulations um, or anything like that. In fact, in your book, you talked about abortions as the leading cause of death in L.A. during the time period that we discussed. So why was that the case? I think it's important to, to recognize that women are kind of at the mercy of whoever they can find. It's not like you know, shopping for a doctor and comparing their different Yelp pages or anything like that and seeing where their credentials are. Um, you know, nowadays you assume they have medical degrees and they pass the board. Um, but if you're looking for someone who's providing you an illegal service, then it means you can be at the mercy of someone who doesn't have a degree, yeah. who, um, who just performs these procedures and maybe has been lucky so far. Um, so there's really no standardized care. It could be a really skilled person who does a good job um, and who takes the care to kind of sanitize their instruments and wash everything. Or it could just be someone who read a medical textbook and has the supplies and think they're good enough at it. There was one guy who I mentioned very tangentially in the book. His name was Hardly Heddens. He uh, was based in San Francisco. He had no medical training. And he actually would perform his abortions over like a wooden plank over the tub in his bathroom in his apartment oh my god and like he he was an engineer he was not a medical professional or anything like that and um and sometimes this is you know normal and if you have this moment before the widespread use of antibiotics there really isn't anything that a doctor can do to help a woman who has complications from an illegal abortion um, most of the time, the, the causes of death from illegal abortion, yes, you can have instances where there's like perforation of, of organs, uh, but most of the time it's because instruments weren't sanitized and you're introducing bacteria, which causes an infection and that could lead to sepsis and, and death. And so before the, the widespread availability of antibiotics, you know, most of these women who have unhygienic procedures, there isn't anything the doctors can do. And they go to the doctor when it's too late at this point. Um, you know, when they actually start experiencing the full, you know, septic shock. Um, mortality does decrease over time when antibiotics become more widespread, um, but also like people start going to the emergency room after they have complications. And so this does end up helping some people survive botched abortions a little bit later, but there isn't much for, for these people before that. I remember there was someone you mentioned in the book that, you know, tried to educate women um and, and help them with health and safety by like when you go into the you know quote unquote doctor's office is there a certificate on the wall check for that if your abortion is costing you i believe the number was 300 maybe i'm making that up but it was like if your abortion is less than 300 bucks it is, yeah do not go to that person. Like if there's a wooden plank over a bathtub, don't <laughs> go to that person. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> oh my God. This just terrifying that you're literally at the mercy of, and there aren't safe resources and for you illegal. and it's illegal. Yeah. 
And, you know, $300, that was in the 1960s. And so that's a lot of money. And so that was uh, Pat McGinnis. She was this activist who would literally just hand out pamphlets and leaflets to people on the street corner. Um, she even started like hosting DIY abortion workshops. Like, okay, if you're going to do it yourself, this is the safest way mm. to do it, to just start your abortion enough so that you can get taken and accepted at an emergency room so that they have to. And it is it. legal in that sense that, that, cause they're doing it to save the woman's life. Exactly. So that changes the context. They have no other choice, but to complete the partial abortion that you just barely started. Oh my gosh. This next question, it, it's, it's a big one. <laughs> so you talk a lot in the book about the disparity like in abortions between white women and black women and women of color, because I mean, the, the, the disparity, but I mean, it's huge. Right. And you brought it up in a number of ways throughout the book. Two of the main ways that you brought it up that I'm hoping you can speak to here are one, the fact that it was primarily white women that sought medical abortions because women of color oftentimes could not access nor afford, you know, options other than self-inducing. And two, the fact that white women, you kind of already touched on this in the, you know, the eugenics conversation that we just had, that the fact that white women were in this weird position of using abortion as a form of birth control, because they were often discouraged from using any other form of birth control, like contraceptives, because uh, another quote from your book was, if white women continue to abort or use contraceptives, immigrants would take over. Oh my gosh. It's it's, It's a huge question. I'm hoping you can just talk to... You know, the issue of, of race and even, you know, poverty lines and eugenics and just all of that here to, to talk about the difference between white women and black women and women of color when it comes to seeking abortions. That is a big one. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I, think- I know. So we'll just sit back and you'll just talk for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> that, that might get through the first part of the question. So... Um, <laughs> That touches on point A. That touches on point A. <laughs> now let's move into point B. And I hope uh-huh. you're, you've canceled all your weekend plans. So, <laughs> Refilling on the cocktail now. Yes, please. So I, I think you're right in kind of narrowing down the, the first part about access to eugenics and, and access. Um, because, you know, it's important to remember that for, for all of these states that do have laws against abortion, there are exceptions, right? Unless a they're illegal unless a physician determines that they're necessary to save a woman's life or health, or mm-hmm. in some instances, it's the laws written a little bit more broadly. So those are the, the strict kind of parameters around which an abortion becomes legal. And that's just the law. And then there's the mechanism through that. So depending on what time period we're looking at, if we're looking after the 1930s, that means a woman has to go to her private physician. That means the physician then has to present her case before the therapeutic abortion committee then that means that she has to have a hospital procedure and that might take a couple days in the hospital where she has to stay. And so we're just adding the dollar signs to every single layer and layer of this process. And that would make it legal. That would make it safe, but also make it expensive. Mm. And not even considering the fact that some hospitals don't let physicians of color have admitting privileges, um, not considering that, you know, people of color would probably be precluded from most private hospitals. Um, So access kind of, there's multiple layers to what that actually means. Do they have a physician even who's willing to perform an abortion because maybe the physician thinks they're immoral and they don't wanna do that. So it could be hospital access, it could be cost. Um, And then the eugenics movement, which again is kind of running parallel. If your argument as a poor woman or a woman of color, someone who is already kind of on the undesirable side of this spectrum, Mm -hmm. If you're arguing that you have a justice for an abortion, then your physician or this institution could then make the claim, well, is there something wrong with you so that we should prevent future therapeutic abortion for a poor woman, for a woman of color, for, Mm -hmm. you know, an imbecile, you know, using the eugenics language, does that then open the door for institutionalization or sterilization? Yeah. And so if you want to exert a certain amount of choice and control and not be at the mercy of these institutions, then that could mean looking for an illegal provider. Mm -hmm. Yikes. As far as the other one about, you know, white women using this as kind of a method of birth control. So it's more accessible to them if they have, you know, means they might already have a private physician who they kind of say, 
well, I want this. And if you want to continue being our family physician, you will find a justification Mm -hmm. or a reason to kind of argue this before the board or just to do it on your own. And then I think it's also important to to remember that birth control is illegal in most states until Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. And that only makes birth control legal for married couples. Mm -hmm. And then it's not until 1972 with Eisenstadt v. Baird that it becomes acceptable for single people, which is right before Roe versus Wade. So this is really the only way that that they can have that. You have mentioned the Pacific Coast abortion ring many times um, during this episode. Can you walk us through what that was specifically for those who might not know, and then also the Rankin trial? So the ring, um, Reginald Rankin is kind of the the brains behind it. Um, he's He used to do some like shady tax and real estate stuff in like the 20s until the depression. Um, so he, I think, I imagine him as one of those guys who always has a hustle where he's always trying to do something to make money. And so he decides he wants to create a, a coastwide abortion syndicate, and he ends up recruiting this physician by the name of George Watts. George Watts is super old. Um, he's about to retire, um, but he promotions uh, for 40 years without any legal trouble. And Rankin recruits him accountant. And together, the three of them are at the head of this organization. They start hiring doctors and physicians um, abortion specialists who maybe don't have like actual medical credentials. Everyone has to kind of get trained by Dr. Watts and how to do this procedure correctly using his device. And they just start buying up abortion offices throughout California, Washington, and Oregon. They find people who've already been performing abortions. They kind of get them to join their organization. They retrain them in their methods And then they move them around to other clinics. They kind of shuffle people around so that they're not entitled or feel ownership over their previous clinics. Again, it's around 1934. Um, They're really like in full swing, 1935. Um, They're really successful and profitable and comparatively safe to a lot of other illegal abortion providers. Um, they, They never really had any fatalities. They had a couple instances where women required hospitalization, but they actually paid their medical bills and everything. And ultimately, police receive a tip and they start investigating and cracking down on what really was an open secret in, in a lot of these places. So the, the trial um, is people in the state of California versus Reginald Rankin. Uh, basically, all of these physicians go on trial. They're all um, charged with violating California's abortion law. And most of the women who are like nurses, um, a lot of them end up testifying um, for immunity or, you know, probation, you know, a lot of kind of minor offenses. Uh, Reginald Rankin ends up going to San Quentin for a very long time, you know, a few years. And that really kind of cracks down um, on the string. But one of the things that I thought was most unique about it was that they actually were able to bring in a lot of the patients to testify on the stand because they were so safe uh, that they had, you know, really it's, it, kind of this fictive kind of legitimization, right? But they had medical records, they had all of these documents uh, for all of these patients. And so they were able to use that to find these women who had had these procedures to compel them to testify in court, kind of shifts this narrative about abortions being dangerous and terrible, because now you have all of these women who've had them and they're on the stand and they're saying, yeah, I I had an abortion and, I feel great. I feel fine. And everything was safe. Like, what's the problem here? Um, So I, I argue that it was a really significant trial in California because it kind of changes this narrative. But then by around the same time as well, most legal abortions are almost exclusively in the hospital. So there's no reason for some of these individual providers to have speculums or anything like that. It kind of lowers the standard of evidence um, because previously it was really a lot easier to, to try someone if the woman died and now they don't actually need them. So I think another huge misconception about abortions is you, there's a whole chapter in your book that's dedicated to Tijuana abortions and women crossing the border to obtain abortions in Mexico. But I think the misconception is they, you know, they did this because it was legal there or more accessible there, but this isn't true. It was illegal in Tijuana too. So why were women crossing the border to get abortions? 
this was actually kind of a, a challenging part uh, of the book to write because I had to rely so much on like border historians who are kind of talking about the binational trans uh, space and what borderlands mm -hmm. like mean in people's minds as well. Um, and so for like a lot of Americans beginning in the 20s, it becomes easier to travel to the border um, for prohibition and gambling and things like that. And it kind of becomes this exotic place where they feel like they can indulge in things that aren't acceptable in the United States, morally, whatever. Yeah. And abortion was illegal in Mexico. It started being illegal in Mexico in the 1930s. But I guess it just kind of goes back to this idea of this border space being a place where anything goes, right? It's yeah. Uh, it's an exaggeration of this kind of what wild, happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Exactly. It's it's kind of that an extremist. And so as kind of vice becomes more concentrated in these border areas for and marketed for American consumption, abortions just kind of end up finding their way into this space as well. And so it is illegal. It's illegal in the United States and it's illegal in Mexico, but it's kind of like, well, don't ask, don't tell. Um, you know, we're just gonna mm -hmm. tolerate it becomes a zone of tolerance, essentially. Yeah, I, I actually yeah. didn't know that. That's surprising to hear. All right. So let's fast forward to 1992. Mm -hmm. Roe versus Wade happened nearly 20 years prior. But in 92, another case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, had another huge impact on abortion history. Can you tell us more about that case and what it did? Yeah. So um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey kind of moves us away from the trimester system that Roe versus Wade established. Roe versus Wade kind of said, well, you know, in the first trimester, you know, roughly first 12 weeks, um, the fetus isn't viable. The state doesn't have an interest in protecting fetal life. We can't really restrict or do anything. Second trimester, there's more complications. So states can begin to regulate. Third trimester as well, it's more dangerous. States can regulate. Um, but as long as we always leave exceptions to protect a woman and her life, then it's fine. So that used to be uh, the framework under Roe versus Wade. Planned Parenthood versus Casey, it was in response to the series of acts that were passed in Pennsylvania. And some of them required, you know, parental notification, spousal notification, and all of these other kind of restrictions that really mirror what we're starting to see in some of these other states today. And Planned Parenthood versus Casey, it's interesting because both sides were kind of happy with how it came out. Um, you have people who were you know, pro-choice who were happy that for the most part, the basic tenets of Roe remained intact. Um, but also people who were against abortion also saw it as a victory because it made abortions more difficult to get. Mm -hmm. So it moves us a little bit away from just this kind of basic trimester system. Um, and it moves us more towards an undue burden standard, which basically says we can't stop women from getting abortions in the first 12 weeks, but we can make it harder. We can make it harder and more challenging as long as we're not completely stopping them. And so then states can begin to kind of craft laws um, and they can go on the books unless those laws are challenged in courts and a court says, no, that is an undue burden. But what is an undue burden for me is not necessarily what is an undue burden for you. Exactly. And the people who are overwhelmingly affected by the undue burden standard are poor women, women of color, and women who are in rural areas. Mm -hmm. And so... This really created the opening for um, things like waiting periods, ultrasounds, um, and you know, counseling, all of these other things, and you know, parental consent and spousal notification. Um, so it moves the decision away from patient doctor. It moves it into the courts, mm -hmm. and then the court has to decide: yep. does this constitute an undue burden? I think so. That perfectly sums up, you know, where I want to take us next to kind of wrap up this whole conversation. And again, I know your book, you know, your, your research kind of ended in 1969, but you're the expert in this area. So I'm hoping you can just generally speak to kind of more the, the current state of abortion rights in the United States today. Because I think, again, we've been speaking a lot about common misconceptions and I believe, you know, one of the largest ones about Roe v. Wade is that it made abortion legal and accessible throughout the entire United States. But again, like you just said, you know, speaking to what's an undue burden for you is not the same for me. It isn't necessarily true that Roe v. Wade made abortion, you know, legal and accessible throughout all the states because states can still regulate the terms of abortion within their own borders and whatnot. So I'm hoping, 
again, I know this is outside of your, you know, your research period, but I'm hoping you can just generally touch on the current state of affairs. So I think what we are seeing now, and was it Texas that just passed like a six week abortion ban that technically, right, violates Roe versus Wade. And, you know, does the, does banning it at six weeks constitute an undue burden? I, I don't know if the court has yet decided because there, I'm sure it'll get challenged soon. Um, what I think a lot of these conservative states are doing is laying down the framework for the potential overturn of Roe v. Wade. And Roe v. Wade, you know, can disappear. It, it can be completely overturned and it can be eradicated for, for whatever reason that um, a conservative majority court would do that. Um, and unless they explicitly said, you know, abortion is a violation of X, Y, or Z, and they should be legal everywhere. What I think we're going to see is that individual states kind of continue on the trajectories that they're already on. Mm-hmm. In some states like California, you know, a woman's right to choose is protected. Um, but in other states like Texas, for example, I think that would just basically kind of turn the switch on which they would say abortions are illegal, yeah. um, or you know, here is the very tiny window in which you can have a legal abortion. So I think the states. Are, are going to continue on whatever trajectories they're already on uh, as we kind of have this increased polarization um, in the United States on a specific issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have, you know, a, a really good answer for that, except that, you know, overwhelmingly the people who are going to be hurt most are poor women, women of color, young women. You know, it's, if you make something illegal, it's not going to stop them from doing it right. because women right. did it this whole time uh, that it was illegal in the book. Which I think is one of the closest parallels to the prohibition period is like, just because you made... People didn't stop drinking. People did not stop. You know, just because you made the sale and transportation of alcohol illegal, people still found ways around it. And in fact, they found very scary, very dangerous ways around it. Yeah. And, you know, government poisoning gin and stuff just to, to stop right. people from right. Um, right. And so I, I think if there is one lesson from history that we could learn, I would hope that it's that, that it doesn't mm-hmm. stop these things from happening. And so if the goal is really to reduce the number of abortions, then what can we do to actually work towards that goal? Because it isn't stopping abortions. It isn't making them illegal. It would be providing more comprehensive sex education. It would be providing access to contraceptives and birth control. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you're going to put women in a position where they have to have a child, um, then what resources is that state then providing? Something else I just wanted to add on really quickly, because this is such a, it's not a black and white issue, right? It's a gray issue. And because it does feel so polarizing and it does feel like we will never reach some sort of compromise. I did hear you speak uh, last week at an event and I remember you, you named a statistic, something along the lines of like the majority, majority of people do want abortions to be accessible. Do you, hopefully this is like jogging your memory because I'm not doing a very good job here of recalling exactly what you said, but it did help to kind of make, make the issue feel less black and white to make the issue feel less polarizing. Yeah. Because I think we focus on the the two loudest sides, which are, you know, abortion should be banned in all instances or like free for all you get an abortion, you get an abortion, you get abortion, whatever. Yeah. Um, We're focusing on those two extremes. Uh, The statistic was that, I think it was about 60% of Americans believe that abortion should be legal in some instances. So that's not like everyone can have an abortions. It means at least, you know, an abortion to save a woman's life or health, or if there's some kind of anomaly mm-hmm. um, with the fetus. And so most Americans kind of fit within that middle kind of gray area, but we focus so much on the, I think it's like 18% of people who are like, no, not at all whatsoever never, we, we should never have abortions. We focus on those people. Yeah. Um, but everyone else is, is mostly in the middle at, in some place. That is really interesting. And that does make it feel, like I said, less polarizing to see that there is some middle ground between the arguments. The, the problem is though that, you know, we in California tried laws that kind of said, okay, well then we can only have abortions in these instances. And physicians didn't like it. People didn't like it. 
people were still kind of skirting around it because it still didn't leave the option for choice. So, you know, is there, you know, I am, you know, I twisted around, you felt happy for a minute that there was common ground, but maybe there actually isn't, um, <laughs> you know, how do we actually kind of work through because <laughs> it's it's one thing if we say okay yeah 60 percent of americans believe abortion should at least be legal in some instances okay yeah. well how do you write a, a law then right that recognizes right. these diversities of opinion because there are variables of so, course within that 60 percent Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Alicia. I learned so much, uh, both from the book and just hearing from you. It was so great. And I highly encourage our listeners to check out your book. Can you share with them where they can find you and, and find your book? Alicia's Zoom audio cut out right when she was about to tell you where you can find her book. So you can actually find it at nebraskapress.unl.edu, or you could also purchase it on Amazon if you are so inclined. You all know where to find us on Instagram. You can find us at hashtag history underscore podcast, where we post all of our cocktail recipes. We do live trivia nights. We do giveaways and contests and so much more. That's at hashtag history underscore podcast. And then you can also find us on our website at hashtag history dash pod.com. And as always, you will be doing us a huge favor by subscribing to us on whatever podcast platform you use, sharing about us with your friends and giving us a rate and review. And like we shared at the top of the episode, this was our season seven finale. We will be taking a little mini break before returning with brand new episodes and cocktails in July. But don't worry, we're still going to be around guesting on other podcasts in the meantime. So definitely stay tuned for announcements on that. And speaking of staying tuned for events in July, we have... A very vague but exciting announcement to make. Yes, keep your eye on Instagram for sure, because in honor of our upcoming two year anniversary, if you will, we're <laughs> planning a super fun Zoom event. Please keep a lookout for that. We're going to um, have more information and we'll definitely announce it on Instagram and Patreon. Yay! Thank you all so much. And thank you again, Alicia. This is great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Bye.